Good evening, everyone. Uh, it's a pleasure and a privilege for me to be sharing from God's Word in this uh, afternoon. Uh, when Dave uh, called me a few weeks ago uh, for this, uh, at first I was really nervous and I uh, tried to avoid this situation, but uh, it's, a, it's a privilege and it's a pleasure for me to, to share from God's Word. And we already read uh, Psalm 50, which is really interesting and it has a lot of lessons and, and, and important things to our lives and things that are relevant for us as we grow, as we grow as a church, as we grow as a community. And I wanted to start with two questions that maybe you can answer to yourself and reflect and think about this. The first question is, what does worship mean for you? What does worship mean for you? Because I know that maybe we have a concept of what worship is. And, but we were coming to God's word to find out what really worship means for God. No for men's, no for society, no for churches or denominations, but for God. And my second question for you is, how do we, how do you worship? How do we worship God? As, and as you think about the, your answers, and as you think through this, let me pray together uh, before I start this, this sermon. Dear God, we come before you understanding who you are and who, who we are. Have mercy of us, God, and speak to our hearts. Send your Holy Spirit to take your word and take it to our hearts. Help us to change and grow to be more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me start sharing with you about this concept of the judge and his messenger. And we're going to read through the, the verse 1 to the verse 6 about this concept of the judge and the messenger. It is clear that the author of this psalm is Asaph. And I'm sorry about the outline because I wrote the Spanish version of Asaph, which is Asaph. But it's just a few letters. You can go back home and just write that down there. Or you learn, you learn a new Spanish word today, which is it's cool. But it's Asaph. It's interesting that the first psalm of Asaph is here in Psalm 50, but we will, found, we will, found, uh, we will find in Psalm 73 to, to 80 a bunch of psalms written by Asaph. Who was this man? He was a worship leader. By the way, his name means he who gathers. The one who unites and reunites the people from God with just one goal, which is to worship God, to lead the people of God to a place of adoration, to a place of worship, to a place of thanksgiving. So it's really interesting that God shows Asaph to deliver his message and this message to the people of Israel because he, he was the worship leader. And you will see in First Chronicles chapter 15, chapter 20, 25, Asaph, the one who works alongside with David and Saul and Solomon from the tribal Levi, a, a, a whole family leading the people to worship God. 
you will see him in Nehemiah chapter 12. His family, his sons, and still doing the same, the same kind of ministry in the temple with the people of God. So as I was studying this, I thought he was the right person. He was the right man to send this message to these people. Because worship leaders can see something that maybe other people cannot see. They can see how the people come before God. The attitudes, their reactions, their expressions. That's why Asaph, now it's kind of having a double role. In one hand, he's a worship leader. In the other hand, he's a prophet. A prophet of God. A person who is delivering the message from God. Yes, he has a background of a worship leader. He has a background of playing the guitar, the piano, of composing some songs and writing some, some spiritual hymns for God, experiencing adoration, and maybe uh, working on the rosters and stuff like that, putting the songs and sending the chords to the, to the, the musicians and doing the rehearsals, the practicing, and the tech and the sound. He was in the, in, the, in, the, in the first line of worship. So he was a person who has been experiencing the reality of worship. He is the messenger. He is the person that God chose to deliver this message. But we also have here the judge. And it's just amazing how God introduces himself. In verse 1, we read here, The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun where it sets. God introduces himself with three names of God. The mighty one, God, the Lord. The mighty one, God, the Lord. The mighty one means the almighty. There's no one like God. The mighty one. What an amazing way to introduce yourself. I'm the mighty one. But secondly, I am God. The Hebrew word is Elohim, which means I am the supreme God, the God of gods. I, I, you cannot compare me with other gods. I am Elohim, the supreme God. But the third name is Jehovah, the self-existent, the, the eternal God, the God who does not need anything else to exist. No one created him. No one defines him. He is God. And the, cent the central topic of, of this psalm is, is worship, is adoration. So that's why it's, it's so important to understand who God is. How God introduces himself, how, how God shows himself to the people. I am God, the mighty, the mighty God. I am the supreme God. I am the self-existing the self God, the eternal God. Dear brothers and sisters, that makes me think that from the very beginning of, of these psalms, in his introduction, God starts and begins to teach us about worship. Because as we come to worship God, we need to understand who God is. He is the almighty God. He is the supreme God. He is the self-existing God. He doesn't need our worship. 
He doesn't need our presence. But still, He wants us to be here because He, he loves us. Because He wants to grow in a relationship with us. He's the only imperfect object of worship. We live in a selfish world, in a self-centered society. And in the middle of that, in the midst of that, God comes to, 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 to turn our gaze back to Him. To make us understand that worship, it's all about Him. I'm sure that some Sundays you come to a church or you come to the presence of God with a lot of complaints. I hate that. Uh, I'm really tired. Oh, the same songs again. I didn't like the sermons too much. It wasn't what I, I, was, I wanted to hear. Uh, nobody say hi to me in the front door. Uh, my parking spot was used. I couldn't. I, I parked really far away from here. I had to walk to here. And, and, and we're, we are forgetting the main idea, the, the principal idea of coming to God. We're not coming because, because we deserve to come. We're coming to the presence of God with this attitude, with this mentality of adoration. We're coming before the mighty one. We don't deserve to be in the presence of God. By, but by his grace, by his mercy, because of his forgiveness, because the cross of Christ, we have this privilege to come before the mighty one, to come before Elohim, to come before the self-existing God and worship him, understanding who God is and who we are. Understanding that God is the sole reason for a worship. Verse 2 says, From Zion perfect in beauty, God shines forth. And I love how Nathan last week described Zion and, and all the, the history of God and the city. And there's just one reason of the beauty of this city called Zion. Of this mountain sign, and it was the presence of God. Because of the presence of God, this city was beautiful, exalting, and outstanding. This is a new teaching of worship. Because the reason of the beauty of worship, the reason of, of the outstanding beauty and, and wonderful of what Worship is, is the presence of God himself. Is this picture of reconciliation. Is this picture of an enemy coming to God through the merits of Christ. This same God that comes from the beauty of Zion, in verse 3, he says, Our God comes and will not be silent. A fight the boards before him, and around him a tempest rages. It's undeniable that God comes to judge. It's undeniable that God comes to, to call the attention of the people of Israel. It's undeniable that God is coming to judge his people. 
his children. He's coming as a fire. And that makes me think in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 and 29, the author of Hebrews described the same concept in a worship context. He says, therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Can you just imagine that it blows my mind? The fact that we are able to worship a consuming fire God. But this is the God who is coming to judge his people. And third, let me explain about a little bit about the setting. God calls the heaven, the heavens and the earth as witnesses of this judgment. God calls his people into his presence. Those who made a covenant with God. I think calling you can find in Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 1 and Isaiah chapter 1 verse 2. God in verse 7 says, listen my people and I will speak. I will testify against you, Israel. I am God, your God. And this is the setting. God is calling the heaven and the earth as witnesses of, of what he's about to say. We have Israel, we have the judge, we have the messenger, we have the witnesses. In the same way, this uh, judgment is applicable to us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, and in several letters of Paul the Apostle, he calls the churches as, as, as saints, as consecrated people, as the people of God, as the family of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 says, you are no longer foreigners or strangers, but fellow citizens of God's people and also members of his family. So in a way, I think some of the principles are really applicable to us. This takes us to the second section of the chapter. So we just studied about the judge and his messenger. But now we're going to study about the judge and his people, verses 5, uh, verses 5 to 15. Now God is directing his message to those who have professed to be children of God. Those who have declared themselves to be God's people. Those who have been confessed with their mouths that they are children of God. You will see that in this section, God is going to declare the futility of external worship when a spiritual faith is absent. In this section, I'll say it again, God will declare the futility of external worship when a spiritual faith is absent. And the first thing that God is going to deal with is rituals. Rituals. And we will read from verse 7. Gather up. Sorry, listen to me, uh, my people, and I will speak. I will testify against you, Israel. I am God, your God. I am God, your God. The fact that God introduces himself as the mighty one, Elohim, Yehovah, and now he's describing himself as your God. It, shows, it showed us two kind of 
faces of God. In one way, he is the supreme God. It seems like with this description, God is kind of far away from us. But now he's telling, I am God. I am your God. I am here with you. I can see how you come and worship. I can see all your external things, the sacrifice, your efforts. But there is also something that I can see from you. I can see your heart. Because I am your God. I don't get excited about all the external things. Remember, uh, yes, I am the, the supreme God. But I am your God as well. I am your Father, and I can see your heart. It made me think on, on how God spoke to the prophet Samuel. Don't just see what the demands are, like what is in front of, of your eyes. Because that's what people see. But I see God looks to our hearts. And this is the real reasons for God's accusation against his people. I bring no charge against you concerning your sacrifice or concerning your burnt, your burnt offerings, which are ever before me. I have no need of, of a bull from your store or of God from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on, thousand, on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of gods? God is going to admonish his people for the misconception of what worship was and what worship is continuing to be today. Does God need our sacrifices? Does God need us to set an afternoon time to come and be here? Does God need your money? Does God need your time? Does he need our efforts or appearance? And this is what God is going to admonish and rebuke against the people of Israel. You're not getting the idea of what worship is. I'm not questioning your sacrifice because they were following every ritual, every commandment. They were using the appropriate animals. They kept the Sabbath. They followed Eid regulation as it was written. That's, that's why God is not questioning their actions. But what God is disapproving was the motives you know, in their hearts. Does God, does God need our worship? Does God need our, our companionship? No, he doesn't. If he was hungry, and, and he shows his, his, his it, it seems like a joke. Like, if I were hungry, I, I, I don't need that meat to, to eat that. Uh, you're, you're missing the point of worship. It's not about the animals. It's not about the sacrifices. 
It's not about the budget. It's not about setting apart from 4 to 6 to 30. It's not about praying with your kids. It's not about just, just those rituals every day. It's not about your spiritual routine. I love Charles Spurgeon, and, and in one of his precious book called Treasures of David, he writes comments of all the Psalms. And in these Psalms, he writes these, these words. The sacraments and the sacred rites are the major concern of unconverted but religious people. But to the Almighty, the spiritual worship which they forget is the only matter. The sacraments and the sacred rites are the major concern of the unconverted but religious people. But to the Almighty, the spiritual worship which they forget is the only matter. They thought that it was the sacrifices what pleased the Lord. They thought that it was like the appearance, the behavior, what pleased the sublime and superior God. They were doing things because of the external appearance that they were building. We live in a world of, in a world of social media, of filters, of stories, of posts, of pictures, where it's so easy to build a, a, a image from ourselves and construct a fake appearance of our hearts. And it wasn't different from the people of Israel. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees from the same behavior in Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, quoting the prophet Hosea. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy not sacrifice, for I have not come to call, to call the righteous, but the sinners. This was part of Israel, Israel history. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22, the prophet Samuel, he rebukes the king Saul, and he says, Does the Lord delight in burning offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Are we pretending what worship is? Are we living in real worship? Does God need our sacrifice? 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 says, What do you have that you do not receive? What do you have that you do not receive? So it's not about what we can give to God because he is the one who gave us that. So it's not about giving things to God. God is more concerned about who we are than what we do. God is more concerned about who we are than what we do. God does not want you to die in rituals he wants you to live in the joy of worship. So how can we give real worship to God? How can we have a, a proof heart 
by God when it comes to worship. That takes us to the next section, real worship. Verse 14 says, Sacrifice, thank offerings to God. Fulfill your bowls to the Most High and call on me in the day of travel. I will deliver you and you will honor me. That's real worship. And let me just share with you three aspects of real worship. First thing, thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. The Hebrew word is tada. It's an extension of hands, adoration, confession, and praise. It comes to the root word uh, that means revere of worship with extended hands. I love soccer. And back in Chile, I used to go to some soccer uh, games. And when my team scored a goal, I was screaming and, and, and stretching my hands and my arms. And all of a sudden, I was giving a hug to a random guy beside me because I was so excited to see my team scoring. How do you react when God does something in your life? How do you react when you hear that something, understand the reality of the gospel and his life turned from death to life? Do you celebrate those things? Do you clap to the Lord? Do you stretch your arms with thanksgiving in your heart? How do you react in times of trouble when God provides something that you were praying for? When God heals someone that you were on your knees praying for that? Do you shout the Lord with thanksgiving in your hearts? Psalms 100 verse 4, it says, Enter his gates with performance. Enter his gates with perfection, with amazing prayers. Enter his gates with money, with good music. No, he says, enter his gate with thanksgiving. And his courts with praise, give thanks to him and praise him. Praise his name. Gratitude is a decision of your heart. I declare before God that I'm grateful for what I have, for who I am, for what I'm living. I'm grateful for his grace, his mercy, his goodness. There's nothing more beautiful than have a grateful heart to God. There's nothing that brings us closer to God than adoration and gratitude. Uh, Proverbs chapter 15 verse 13 says, A happy heart makes the face cheerful, but heartache crushes the spirit. And I've been understanding that the more grateful I am with God, the, the, more, the, the more grateful I am with others. Do you want to have a better marriage? Do you want to have a better relationship with your kids? Do you want to have a better relationship with your boss, in your workplace, with the students, with that complicated neighbor that you have that is really annoying to you? Gratitude. The more we give thanks to God, the more we worship God through thanksgiving, the more we are grateful for other people. So it's a, very, it's a vertical gratitude to have a horizontal gratitude. Enter his courts with thanksgiving. 
That's how we worship God. Second, fulfill your bows to the most high. I love singing. I love the worship songs. Uh, but I have one issue with that. It's like sometimes the, ly the lyrics, what we sing, uh, it's, you better do what you're singing. You better live what you're singing. I love praying. And I can remember a lot of moments of consecration, of coming before God and making promises to God. But I have failed so many times. I have made mistakes. And I, 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 I don't know if, if, I have, if I'm really living those songs that I'm, I'm singing. But the calling of worship here is pay your pause to the most high. It's interesting in Jonah chapter 2, verse 9. You know the story of Jonah. He's in the fish, just wondering what to do. But in a moment, he just prayed God. And in the verse 9, he says, But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have bowed, I will make good. I will say, Salvation comes from the Lord. As this year finished, as this year wraps up, a lot of people have the, the great idea of made resolutions for a new year. And maybe one good resolution can be, I'll pay my vows. I will do what I promise to God. Because that's worship. Come with sacrifice of thanks. Pay your boss to God. But I love the third thing. Call on me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you will honor me. Call upon me in the day of trouble. Someone said that in the hour of trouble, we fly to those we love. In the hour of trouble, we fly, we fly to those we love. Where do you go in times of travels? Where do you go? Where do you go when problems comes to your way? Do you go to your wallet? Do you go to numbers? Do you do you go to the wealth of your country? Do you go to politics? Do you go to Centrelink? It seems I'm, it seems a small thing to pray God when we're distressed. Yet it's a more acceptable worship. The same God of fire. The same God of consuming fire. Is calling you. And he's saying, call upon me in your days of troubles. In your best and in your worst days. When the problems come to your way, yes, I am the consuming fire, but I want to embrace you. I'm here with wide open arms for you. I'm here to help you. Call upon me on your days of travel. That's worship. That's worship. Thanksgiving, paying or boss to, to the most high and call upon him on our days of travels. 
next week, we're going to uh, hear from Ben in Psalm chapter 51, verse, uh, the, the, the study about that. But I love the verse 17. It says, my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken, a contrite heart. God, you will not despise. Call out to God. Cry out to God. Run to God in your worst days, in your best days. This is real worship. Briefly, I want to share the last section of this passage. Verses 16 to 21. We're going to see two things that I want to share with you. The first is the hypocrisy of those who use God's word in their lips. Those who recite the laws and take the covenant in their lips. It says, God, verse 16, what right have you to recite my laws or to take my covenant on your lips? You hate my instruction and cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you join with him. You throw in your lot with adulterers. You use your mouth for evil and harness, harness your tongue to deceit. You sit and testify against your brother and slander your own mother's son. When you did these things and I kept silent, you thought I was, you thought I was exactly like you. But I now arrange you and said my accusations before you. Hypocrisy. God confronts the wicked people for their hypocrisy. Believing that they can recite God's word, live sinfully, and go unpunished. It's interesting that in verse 18, verse 19 and 20, God illustrates through different actions the breaking of seven of, of three of the ten commandments. Verse 18, you shall not steal. Verse 18 again, you shall not commit adultery. Verse 19 and 20, you shall not give false testimony. So it's God saying, you know what, even though you're using my words, even, that, even though you're maybe speaking and talking as a Christian person, as a religious person, I know your heart. You're breaking my law. You hate my word. We live in this kind of injustice world, right? We face, we face things with different uh, movements against God's word. People literally hate God's word and God's principles. And, 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 and the way that we see this, this life, the Christian worldview. And it seems like they never get anything, right? It seems like they prosper, they succeed in everything. But sometimes we are like those wicked persons. We think God is just like them. But no, that's why there is hope. That's why there is hope. Consider this. You who forget God, or I will tear you into pieces with no one to rescue you. 
those who sacrifice thanks, thank offerings honor me. And to the blameless, I'll show my salvation. There is hope for us as people of God. Even when we face opposition, even when we face struggles and, and things against us, we can know and we can trust that there is hope because God is not like us. He sees everything. And in one moment of history, he will call them out and he'll say, and he'll say stop. There's no more chances to you. There's no more opportunities to you. Stop now. There is hope. As we wrap up, and we will sing now with Ben a beautiful song about the, what worship really means. I share with you the story of Jonah praying to God in the belly of this giant fish. And straight away after Jonah prayed, the fish vomited up Jonah. And he lands now in, in a shore in uh, Nineveh with his new mission, with a new season in life, with a new purpose, with a new beginning in life. And that's my prayer for you today. Maybe you're not in the belly of a fish. But maybe you're facing struggles, confusion, opposition, problems in life. Maybe worship doesn't make sense for you. Maybe you're not running to God in your days of travel. And you are kind of in the valley of that fish. You're trapped. You don't know where to go, what to do. You're confused. You're questioning God. But in just one prayer, Jonah said, I'll worship you, God. Even though I failed, even though I just ran away from you. And as, as, as he just found himself in that beach, in that shore, he embraced a new season in life. He embraced a new beginning. He embraced a new purpose in life. So that's my prayer for you today. That today you can start a new season of worship in your life. A new season of worship to God. A new season of understanding what worship is, who God is, who we are, and how much we need to worship him. How much we need to come before him with thanksgiving in our hearts, paying what we bought, and calling upon him in our days of trouble.